Today on Better News Radio with Pastor Ricky Alcantad. Well, the point is that for chapter after chapter after chapter, it looked like evil was going to triumph. It looked like justice was nowhere to be found. But now we see justice coming and here and more to come, setting things right. Every loss is regained. Every wickedness is repaid. Where there was dishonor, there is now more honor. Where there was injustice, there's now justice. Where there was evil intended, that evil is turned back on its own head. Hoping God, oh my soul, he is strong and he is strong to save. Hoping God, he's a rock in your hiding place. He's a mighty fortress. So often we see people get away with doing bad things. And it's frustrating to us. We see people getting away with crimes without any consequences. It seemed that the same thing was going to happen in the story of Esther. Haman was planning to kill all of the Jews and no one realized it. But as Pastor Ricky will be teaching, God knew all about Haman's plans and he'd already put his own plans into motion. And as we'll learn, God's plans included appropriate justice for Haman and preservation for the Jews. Let's join Pastor Ricky now for part one of his message, Perfect Justice in God's Timing. If you're new here, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross of Grace. We love to preach through books of the Bible. We believe God speaks to his people when we open up his word. And so let's do that together. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter seven. And if you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back table to your left. You can grab one of those. That's our gift to you. Esther, chapter seven. Here's my opening question for you guys today. When did you first realize that the world is not fair? I realized the world was not fair in a dramatic way. I don't remember a lot of my childhood, which is discouraging to my parents, but I do remember this. I do remember one of my first soccer teams, I believe it was the Mighty Sand Vipers in bright orange. On that team that year, there was a kid whose name I still remember, his name was Judge, which will become ironic in a moment. Judge was, I believe, either the coach's son or one of the assistant coach's sons. Somehow he had the in, and he was mean to everybody on the team, and he got to play more. He got special treatment. He didn't get corrected as much for bad attitudes, and me personally, he did not like. And so I remember this. It was kind of a pain the whole season. And finally, the last day of the season, there's a box of trophies. And there's, the coach is getting ready to hand out trophies to everybody. Just that, you know, I guess when you're seven, you get a trophy just for finishing, which is true. I appreciated that trophy. I kept it for many years. But one of the things I realized is as I looked in the back, Judge stepped on my trophy with his cleats. It was like back behind where the coaches were. There's a couple of trophies that he just like, Arr! and then I thought, oh my gosh, what is he doing? And then, of course, when they hand out the trophies, I look at my trophy, and on the side, there's like a, like a claw mark thing from his cleats. And I remember thinking, this isn't fair. And I remember driving home, looking at my messed up trophy, and thinking, so he just gets away with this? So this is the end of the season, judge whose name is now ironic, was not a very good judge of character and needled me the whole season and then hurt me in the end, destroyed my precious trophy, and then rode off into the sunset. 
to destroy more teammates next season. I remember thinking, age seven, this is not fair. All of us, I think, are born with this concept of fairness, of right and wrong, and there's usually some moment in our lives where we realize life is not fair. But that continues not just from childhood, that continues into adulthood. We go through real struggles and trials, and we come to places in our life where we feel like we've been done wrong, and whoever has done it just gets away with it. Or somebody has hurt somebody close to us, and they just get away with it. Um, I know people in my family who were seriously sinned against by other family members, and those family members never seem to apologize, and it's never made right, and you think, where is the justice? I know people in the church that were fired unjustly from a job, and they tried to protest that job, and there's no recourse, and yet they're asking, where's justice then? I know people who seemed like they were, they were in law enforcement who were treated unjustly by the people they aimed to serve, just as I know the people that their experience was they were treated unjustly by law enforcement, right, on both sides of that thing. And you think, where's justice? How did this crime get overlooked? Why didn't they look harder for who did it? Why didn't this end up better? Why was that one legal loophole exploited and it seemed like that person got away with everything? Maybe you're there. Maybe this is a conceptual thing for you, but I think for a lot of us, there are probably real specific parts of your life that you feel like are unjust, that you're looking for justice and it's nowhere to be found. Well, today in the story of Esther, we're gonna get an answer to this question of where is justice? We've been watching for the book of Esther, many unjust things happen in the book. And it seems like for many chapters that injustice is ultimately gonna triumph. We've seen that God's people are under the rule of a pagan king, that generations ago they were taken off into exile and they've been kind of subjected to a series of foreign pagan kings. We see in Persia, this great enemy of God's people named Haman. We've seen him evil, he's genocidal, homicidal maniac, and yet it seems like he just keeps rising higher and higher in power in the country. We see that he cuts a deal with the king that he's gonna pay the king off to allow him to exterminate the Jews. It seems that justice is nowhere to be found in Persia. So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna walk through the story itself, and at the end, I'll have some concluding reflections. Now, the big theme of Esther, as we've discussed, is where is God when we can't see him? The words God or Yahweh or Adonai, none of those words about God are even present in the book of Esther. So where is God when we can't see him? Well, the answer we find in Esther is that he's right there protecting his people through his providence. And so today, our question kind of fits under that big question. The question is, where is justice? Where is justice? And the answer is this, that God brings. God brings perfect justice in his perfect timing. Esther chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, this is the third time now, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Now, let me catch you up if you haven't been here. 
Esther has been working a long plan to get the king to grant his people mercy so that they're not wiped out by Haman's evil plan. She has been warming the king up. She's been honoring him again and again. She's been kind of inclining his heart toward her, but she has no idea what has just happened the night before, that that God has already intervened in a decisive way, as we saw a couple weeks ago, the decisive way to turn the king's heart toward the Jews, where God essentially wakes the king up in the middle of the night and just so happens that he can't sleep and it just so happens that he calls for the royal records to be brought and read to him and it just so happens he discovers that Mordecai the Jew was never honored for saving the king's life and so he commands Mordecai to be honored and that's the tipping point of the whole story and really the tipping point in the king's heart. His heart is now inclined to the people that saved his life where it was not before. She doesn't know that. So instead, she's bold, she's courageous, and she, as we discussed, she does what she can do, and she trusts God for what she cannot do and what only he can do. Verse three, then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. And if we'd been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared to the loss of the king. So she's skillfully working here in a really interesting way to keep the blame for this situation from being placed at the feet of the king who probably caused this whole mess by agreeing to wipe out a people he didn't bother to learn the name of. It's like, here's a bunch of money. I want to wipe out one of the little people in your kingdom. He's like, great, give me the money. You're good to go. So she's not blaming him. She's saying, okay, look, this is happening. You're unaware of this. I wouldn't even bring this up. And yet it's my own life, my people's life. And so then, verse five, then King Hashuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Because now the queen's life is at stake here. He's saying, who is he? Where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. So you imagine that you're at a dinner party of three people. It's not as though she's pointing and he's like, who's over there? I mean, you're like, we're all sitting around a table and she goes, that guy. And the king looks over and Haman, what's his reaction? Haman was terrified before the king and queen. It's not one of those things you can like be looking over your shoulder like, oh, wow, somebody over there? No, this one, this wicked Haman. In one moment, everything from the book is revealed. Esther is one of the Jews who Haman is trying to kill. And what's worse, the king just became aware that it was another Jew that saved his life. And so this is what's dawning on him at the moment. His savior and his wife are both Jews, and this guy convinced him to kill them and everyone like them. He's realizing, I really like these people. (laughs) And this guy convinced me to kill all of them. And so what happens? Well, the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking. There's a lot of wine drinking with King Ahasuerus, if you notice that. Not the best way to make decisions, but he arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the king's palace garden. Now, this is because he doesn't say anything right away because he's in a bind. He is the one who authorized the order in the first place. So he doesn't want to look like an idiot, and he can't contradict himself suddenly and turn around 
and say, I was just kidding about that edict. No, he authorized it, and yet he surely does not want Haman's plan to go through and to kill these people. But Haman, it says, stayed to beg for his life from the queen, Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. It wasn't hard to see that. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Now, this is going to be convenient because in Persia, no man was ever allowed to be alone with the queen, actually with any of the queen's wives or concubines or anything. In fact, especially with the queen, the regulation was you had to stay seven steps back from the queen. So you can't be in a room alone. You have to stay seven steps back. So he re-enters the room to find Haman, like literally right in front of Esther, begging for his life, probably grabbing you know, her foot or something, saying, please, please, you've got to save me. And it provides the king with just the excuse he needs to begin to resolve this. And the king says, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? This is the irony of Haman. Haman's whole story began because Mordecai the Jew would not fall at his feet. And yet right now he's going to be killed for falling at the feet of another Jew begging for his life. And a dramatic, ironic twist. He says, will he even do this? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So in the ultimate dramatic irony, the very thing that Haman intended to humiliate and destroy one of God's people is being turned around on him. The exact punishment that he was meeting out for somebody else is returning onto him. And he is the one that's gonna be impaled 50 cubits high in front of the entire city in humiliation and shame. Verse 10, they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, then the wrath of the king abated. Verse eight, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king for Esther had told what he was to her, meaning her uncle. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. And so what's happening here is that all of Haman's belongings, his home, all of his massive financial holdings. We know that Haman is wealthy, really, really wealthy. All of Haman's wealth, all of his house, all of his stuff is being turned over to his enemy, the person he intended to take everything from, all that he had is being given over to. And even the signet ring, meaning the second in command in a way of Persia, his position of power and influence is being given over to Mordecai. But then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Haman is gone, but that doesn't mean the edict is gone. So Esther's begging 
that this order be revoked. In verse four, when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, if it please the king and if I have found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Hashuera said to Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For, or because, an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. What the king is saying is, look, I've given you everything that was Haman's. I'm giving you the authority to write whatever legislation you think you need to. But the problem is that I cannot revoke Haman's edict. I authorized it. Therefore, my hands are tied in a sense. You can write whatever you can think of to counteract this, but I can't just remove it. So verse 9 The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sylvan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. Remember, this is a huge empire. To each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying, this is what it said, that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. In other words, the Jews are being authorized to do the exact thing that other people were authorized to do against them. If they are attacked, they're authorized to do everything the edict allowed other people to do to them. And on one day throughout all the provinces of the king, Hashuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, Verse 13, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king, listen to this, in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. See, this is the thing that Haman had spent his whole life longing for, that he would be honored in this way in front of everybody and have this kind of power in all of Persia. And it once appeared that Mordecai's faithful service even in saving the king's life, was being totally ignored. And in fact, he was being done evil. And that Haman, this wicked man, was advancing further and further. And in a moment, in 24 hours, it's all reversed. And Mordecai receives all the honor and more that he deserved. And Haman receives the punishment for his wickedness. Verse 16, then the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, where once there was darkness and sorrow and dishonor. 
and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Meaning that the standing of the Jews rose so much that all of a sudden this is hitting the newsstands everywhere in Persia. The Mordecai, a Jew, is the second in command of Persia, that the queen is a Jew, and all these other people that aren't Jewish are going, you know what, I think we've got a little Jewish in our lineage somewhere. I think your, your great-grandfather, you know? In other words, the whole situation in the whole empire switches and turns on a dime. What's the point of all this? That's where we're stopped today. What's the point of all this? Well, the point is that for chapter after chapter after chapter, it looked like evil was going to triumph. It looked like justice was nowhere to be found. But now we see justice coming and here and more to come, setting things right. Every loss is regained. Every wickedness is repaid. Where there was dishonor, there is now more honor. Where there was injustice, there's now justice. Where there was evil intended, that evil is turned back on its own head. Now, what we're going to do is begin to work through, well, what are the implications of this for our lives and for our world today? We're going to ask three questions. First, question is this. What do we learn about injustice? The book of Esther is very honest about injustice being a reality in the world around us. It doesn't sugarcoat things for us, doesn't it? See, sometimes people get the impression that following God or being a Christian is just trying to have good vibes and good feelings all the time and ignore the hard stuff and like kind of just like close your eyes, like, you know, everything's fine. Like this part of my life is hard. This part of my life is hard, but I'm focusing on God. I'm singing, praying, worship music. I'm going to keep those good vibes going all day. And yet the reality of Esther is that it lays bare the fact that in our world, injustice is real. Evil is real. And yet the Bible does not despair in the face of it or try to hide it. What we learn first is that injustice is limited. In the book of Esther, it looks like Haman, this great enemy, just keeps going up and up and up and rising further and further and further, gaining more and more power, growing in hate more and more and more. And it feels like injustice is reigning supreme over this whole empire. But here's the encouraging thing we learn from the book of Esther. Haman's power is limited. Haman's power is limited. One commentator for the book of Esther says it this way. He says, God keeps evil on a leash. God always keeps evil on a leash. Even the king himself above Haman seems moody and unstable, but even his rule, even where he is supreme in his day, even his rule is limited by God. And this fact, this is what we see throughout the entire Bible. Um, every king is under God's authority. Every king operates in a limited way, only under God's unlimited sovereignty. Satan himself is limited. His evil forces are limited. All evil does not reign supreme. What does this mean for us then? Well, it means that we should not believe the lie that injustice is all that is ruling and reigning. Hope in God, oh my soul, he is strong and he is strong to save. Hope in God, he's a rock in your hiding place. He's a mighty fortress. There's 
so much more to discover in this God of Chance series, but that's all we have time for on today's edition of Better News Radio. If you'd like to hear today's message again, or if you'd like to find more teachings by Pastor Ricky, visit our website at betternewsradio.com. If you'd like a full-length CD version of today's teaching, you can order one by emailing us at radio at betternewsradio.com. We're so glad that we can bring you God's Word through the ministry of Better News Radio, and we want you to know that we're praying for you always. We want to encourage you. If you haven't done so already, find a good Bible teaching church to become a part of. By joining a church, you gain a support group of fellow believers who put God's love into practice and can help you grow in your own relationship with your Creator. You too can contribute in your own unique way as well, and together the body of Christ will reach many with the good news of the Gospel. If you're in the El Paso area, we would love to have you come see us in person at Cross of Grace Church. We meet every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship God and hear what He has to teach us through His Word. Find out more under the Community tab at betternewsradio.com. If you're not in El Paso, there's also some great resources to help you find a great church in your area. Thanks for listening to Pastor Ricky's message today from the God of Chance series. He'll have more to share next time right here on Better News Radio. Oh, my soul.